last winter, I was driving to my lake house, which is about 10 miles from here, after stopping at Walmart to pick up a few things. And I was about maybe a mile away from the house on the one road that is not flat and straight in all of northeast Indiana, I think. It's a road that curves gently to the right and then kind of up to the left. It goes from higher to lower and then back up again. This was on a Monday, and it had snowed over the weekend, and the road was still snow and ice covered. And I wasn't going very fast, but apparently too fast for conditions, as they say, because suddenly, instead of going straight ahead, I was going sideways. And then, as I thought I was getting it back under control, I hit a nice patch of dry pavement, and it shot me off the road into the ditch. Actually, I was kind of up on a, on a berm. I was driving my old Honda Pilot, and I thought to myself, no problem. I'll just put it in four-wheel drive, and I'll get myself out of this mess. But I was just enough on that ridge that not all four wheels were making firm contact with the ground, and I was stuck, and there wasn't a soul in sight. Stuck at the side of the road, not the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it might as well have been. It felt just as desolate at that moment. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do? And just then, down the road came an older model pickup truck, moving ever so slowly and carefully. And I thought, maybe I can flag this person down. And before I could make a move, the truck slowly rolled to a stop. The driver put down his window, and he said, Huh, I thought it was you. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, it was my across-the-street neighbor at the lake, Greg. Now, there are something like 1,200 houses around the Barbie Lakes. 1,200 residences, and I know maybe six people. And as it happened, the one person who came along was quite literally my neighbor. Can't tell you how relieved I was. My toe strap, his truck, and before you know it, I was back on the road. I felt extremely fortunate that it was my neighbor who came along, literally my neighbor. He knew me, I knew him, and that's all it took. Now, I'm grateful for helpful next-door neighbors. Those are the easy ones to connect with. But for the last three months, I've been thinking about neighbors everywhere, not just the ones next door, not just the ones we already know. I've been trying to think more broadly, more broadly about neighbors, who they are, where they are, how they relate to me, how I relate to them, who are my neighbors, who are our neighbors, near and far, familiar and not familiar. And as I've thought about neighbors, I've also especially been on the lookout for new neighbors, for people I haven't known before, or maybe I haven't noticed before. 
trying to see neighbors in other places than just across the street. People who aren't in my community, people who aren't part of my culture, people who aren't in our community, people who aren't part of our culture, people in the wider world. And with the thought of neighbor actively in my mind, I found that it's almost as if I've taken on the task of giving every person I meet the designation of neighbor. When Greg comes down the road in his old pickup truck and I need him to help me, it's easy to say, oh, thank God I have been rescued by my neighbor. But I've been trying to to grow my view of the neighborhood. With Greg, it's not so difficult to connect, but not every encounter works out quite so well. And I've not forgotten through these last several months that neighborliness can sometimes be kind of messy and difficult and confusing. And looking for neighbors, and even more so loving our neighbors, may often test us, convict us, maybe even reveal our true motives. Some neighbors aren't who we think we are, who we think they are, or who we wish they would be. That messes with our our categories and our prejudices. It can even reveal our hypocrisies. And that's why it's been important as well, why I've been trying to think more broadly, more expansively about neighbors and neighborliness, that I've tried to keep this story from Luke's gospel in my mind as well. The story about the encounter between the lawyer and Jesus and how Jesus answers the question, and who is my neighbor? Keeping that close at hand, in the foreground, not just in the background. Jesus is ready to remind me that when it comes to neighbors, it isn't always as I think it will be. I might look for them not just in the easy places, but even in the darkest corners of my reluctant and resistant heart. The place where loving isn't always easy and assumptions may need to be overturned. So I've tried to keep hold of the story of the Good Samaritan through these last number of months. You heard the story read for you, so you're aware that the lawyer questions Jesus about eternal life, and Jesus counters with the question about the law, and then the lawyer testifies that, of course, when it comes to this matter of the law and the question of what is the central tenet of religious and moral law, that the answer is love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbor as yourself. It would seem the case is settled then, but the lawyer, who is probably used to having the last word, just can't help himself. And so he asks, and who is my neighbor? And of course, that's the launching pad for the parable. So I've been thinking about neighbors and this specific question of who is my neighbor, and I've tried to keep that story in front of me as I've done that. And it's not hard to keep that parable in mind. After all, is there a more familiar parable than this one? How many times did we act it out in Sunday school or in vacation Bible school? You've all done it. It's an easy one to act out. It's great because there's lots of parts that you can hand out to everyone, right? 
You need a traveler who's going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You need some robbers to rob him, beat him up, and leave him for dead. There always seemed to be a few boys in the Sunday school class who would eagerly volunteer to be the robbers. There are parts for a priest and a Levite who cross to the other side of the road, holy types who avoid helping out. And then there's the unexpected part in the drama for a good Samaritan. Well, not expect, unexpected from our point of view, because we're used to the idea of a good Samaritan, but certainly unexpected from the point of view of those who were hearing that story as Jesus told it. A good Samaritan, there is no such thing, is what they would have thought. Someone will want to play that part of the unexpected hero in the story. There's always a volunteer. And then you'd need an innkeeper, right? Someone for the Samaritan to pay out of his own pocket to take care of the wounded traveler. And that's pretty much the whole cast. Oh, wait, there's one more thing. Somewhere in there, there's a neighbor, right? Because Jesus tells the story in response to the question, and who is my neighbor? Now, if the neighbor, the person cast in that role, is in our mind, as it usually is, the person who is in need, then the neighbor in this story would obviously be the man by the side of the road. Love your neighbor? Well, then start by loving the poor fellow who is in trouble. He's your neighbor. Your neighbor is the person in need. But we didn't make up this story. This isn't our story, a story of our design. And in Jesus' design, the neighbor in the story isn't the wounded man by the side of the road. The neighbor in the parable isn't the wounded man, the one who needs my or your pity or our help, which surprises our first instinct because he's the one who clearly needs care. He needs some love. Isn't the neighbor who needs the one who needs your help? Well, of course you should care for those around you who need help, right? And sometimes your neighbor is exactly the person that needs to be loved and taken care of. But that's not this story. Pay attention to the story. Because in this story, the neighbor is one, is one of the three people who saw the wounded man left for dead by the side of the road and either did or did not do anything. And as soon as Jesus says that, the clever lawyer knows what is the right answer to his own question. Because regardless of what you might think of Samaritans in general, the one in this story has stopped and helped and bandaged wounds and brought the man to an inn and even paid the innkeeper to take care of him. So, of course, he's been a neighbor to the man. The lawyer is not stupid, at least not when it comes to logic. Love your neighbor as yourself, that's the standard. Well then, who has met the standard? The Samaritan has. He's the only one who has, because he's the one who has shown mercy to the person who was wounded. And that's neighborliness, isn't it? Who is my neighbor? By the time we get to the end of the story, we know the answer just as well as the lawyer knows the answer. It's the one who shows mercy. That's the neighbor. 
It has nothing to do where, with where the person lives or what they look like or what language they speak or whether they're on one side of the tracks or the other side of the tracks. It has nothing to do with race or culture or any other identifier. It's just about mercy. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy. That's it. So the question for each of us, for all of us, isn't whether you meet some standard or image of who I would consider to be my neighbor. The question is whether we have been good neighbors or not. And the answer to that question rests on this. When I saw you in need, did I treat you with mercy? Have I been merciful? Have we been merciful? I bought about 10 books with my uh, part of my Lilly sabbatical fund uh, grant, all related in some way to my sabbatical theme. And one of the books I bought is a book by Martin Luther King Jr. titled Strength to Love. And it's essentially a book of sermons on topics like nonconformity, justice-seeking, social change, and of course, as the title suggests, love. Unsurprisingly, there is a chapter in Martin Luther King's book, Strength to Love, titled, On Being a Good Neighbor. King focuses on the word good. He begins, I should like to talk with you about a good man whose exemplary life will always be a flashing light to plague the dozing conscience of mankind. His goodness was not found in a passive commitment to a particular creed, but in his active participation in a life-saving deed. Not in a moral pilgrimage that reached its destination point, but in the love ethic by which he journeyed life's highway. He was good because he was a good neighbor. And King goes on to define the Samaritan's goodness in terms of his capacity for altruism. You know what altruism is, right? It's regard for and devotion to the interests of others. So King says that the Samaritan demonstrates three kinds of altruism. Universal altruism, that is, altruism unlimited by tribe, race, class, or nation. Dangerous altruism, that is, overcoming deep fear, even risking one's own life to save a brother. And excessive altruism, that is, going beyond the quote-unquote call of duty to act with sympathy, compassion, generosity, or love. I understand that what King calls altruism matches what Jesus calls mercy. And it makes sense to me that both are at the core of what we would call true neighborliness. But I will readily admit that when I was thinking about the theme of neighborliness, especially during the first month and a half of my sabbatical, as I was traveling and meeting new people and visiting new places, I really wasn't thinking much about who is merciful or not, or who is altruistic or not. The measure, quite honestly, that measure wasn't foremost in my mind. Instead, as I suggested earlier, I was thinking about identifying potential new neighbors, thinking about who they were and how I might connect. 
Much more than mercifulness, I was on a lookout for variety and difference, trying to see and understand the spectrum of different people, of new people, wondering about connecting points. I was thinking about identifying them as neighbors more than I was thinking about treating them as neighbors. So in New Orleans, when my son and I were working on one hot afternoon down the street from David Young's house, picking up trash and cutting the grass in one of the lots he owns and where he grows fruit trees and keeps bees, offering fruit for free to anyone who might come in the neighborhood to pick it, there weren't any people walking by and certainly none eyeing the fruit trees and asking about them. Rather, from time to time, Cars came by at a high rate of speed with pounding music vibrating outside from within the car to outside the car and from behind windows tinted so dark that I couldn't see through them. And afterwards, I thought about these invisible people and I wondered, are these my neighbors? And when I visited Raymond in the visiting room on H unit at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, along with the two of us sitting across from each other at the table, there were about six or seven other death row inmates who were in the visiting room at that time, visiting with their visitors. And in that crowded room, I thought to myself, could these be my neighbors? And when my daughter and I went on a week-long learning trip to Ecuador with David Radcliffe of New Community Project, and we stopped along the river at different villages to visit with people of different indigenous tribes and met the shaman of each tribe, I thought to myself, are these my neighbors? And on that same trip, as we traveled mile after mile in long wooden canoes with outboard motors pushing us ever deeper into the jungle of the Amazon basin, and we saw dozens of different kinds of birds and monkeys I doubt you will ever see in a zoo, much less in the wild, and a sloth and an anteater and caimans in the river, and on one brief night hike in the jungle, the tiniest of frogs and the most frightening of spiders. Even then, I wondered about these creatures... Are these my neighbors? And then after traveling to those faraway places, far away from my home, my usual neighborhood, I was able to invite my longtime pastors group who have all retired from pastoral ministry this year to spend a couple of days with me at my lake house. Kind of an ending celebration of our 16 years of collegial relationship and conversations as they will no longer be doing the work of pastoral ministry around which we have shared our conversation and our support. And it was kind of bittersweet. Anyway, I invited them to my neighborhood for a couple of days. And on one Sunday morning, which I thought would certainly be the quietest time at the lake, a young man kept racing his dirt bike around and around that little neighborhood making a terribly loud and obnoxious sound, and finally I couldn't stand it anymore. And I went out the side door, and I stood there at the top of the steps and stared him down as he came directly down the lane that points at the side of my house, and he saw me, and he stopped his dirt bike there facing me. It was like something out of a movie idling in the lane facing me. 
And after he looked at me for a moment, and with the obvious intention of thumbing his nose at me, made one more lap around the neighborhood at the highest speed, spitting gravel behind him, ratcheting the noise to an even higher level before finally leaving the area and probably heading over to the Eichenauer's house on the other side of the lake. I thought to myself, how could this person possibly be my neighbor? And all the previous moments of discovering new neighbors in faraway places were at least momentarily swept away as I was reminded that neighborliness is not always easy and mercy is not always easy and judgment is always at our fingertips and some people are appealing and some people are not. But I was also reminded that none of that matters. It doesn't matter what or how or who they are, their variety, their location, their newness to me, their behaviors, their interaction or lack of interaction with me. None of that matters. What matters is whether or not I can feel and figure out how to be a neighbor to them. And figuring that out means answering one question, what does mercy coming from me look like? Mercy to the drivers of cars speeding down Lazardi Street in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans. What does that look like? Does it look like picking up trash and cleaning the lots anyway, even if it's the trash that they will likely throw out the window as soon as I walk away? Mercy to the inmates on death row. What does that look like? Does it look like seeing each of them as fearfully and wonderfully made by the same creator who has made me? Seeing them that way as we sit in the same room, setting aside judgment or fear. Mercy for the indigenous villagers in the Amazon basin. What does that look like? Does it look like coming back here to the United States and promoting justice by cutting my oil consumption, palm oil, crude oil. Mercy even for the creatures in the jungle along the river. What does that look like? Does it look like actually caring about the planet's biodiversity, appreciating it, respecting it, protecting it, instead of just using it? And mercy for that obnoxious kid on that dirt bike. And this is the hardest one, at least in terms of how it twists and tests my attitude. What does that look like? Does it look like not condemning him, not hating him, not judging him, not giving up on him? Maybe I need to get myself ready for the time when I will see him by the side of the road because based on the way he rides that dirt bike, that is entirely possible. <laughs> Who is my neighbor, asked Jesus. Asked the, Jesus, the lawyer asked Jesus. Who is the neighbor to the man left for dead by the side of the road, Jesus asks. The one who showed him mercy, says the lawyer. Go and do likewise, says Jesus. Mercy is what matters. Being merciful is what matters. Amen.